We have been this semester exploring what the Bible has to say about relationships. And so we've talked about dating, we talked about marriage, we talked about singleness. And last week, um, we started the conversation on sex. In many ways, tonight is going to be a continuation of last week. So if you weren't here last week, you can find the message online. All of our messages from RUF are on uh, iTunes. You can just search RUF at University of Tennessee, and uh, you can catch up. If you weren't here last week, that's fine. Just know that last week, in many ways, sets up the backdrop for what we're going to be talking about tonight. And what we're going to basically be talking about tonight, as you can see in your handout, is the topic of homosexuality and same-sex preference. And I know, man, this is, such a, this is such a difficult issue because it hits so close to home. My guess is it probably hits so close to home either for you personally or um, uh, because of someone that you love that um, is same-sex attracted or identifies himself as a homosexual. So... The question is, why talk about this issue? Why would we wrap up the semester talking about this? Especially when some of you probably know that the Bible doesn't devote a lot of airtime to this topic. I mean, the Bible does address it, but it doesn't spill a lot of ink over this issue. So why deal with it? Well, uh, even though the Bible doesn't really address it in an exhaustive sort of um, uh, sense and given it a lot of airtime, obviously this is a major, major issue in our culture right now. This is a major hot-button issue politically, religiously, culturally. I mean, it, it's a major objection that's leveled against traditional faiths, such as Christianity. And so to do a, to do a series on relationships and address sex and sexuality and just sort of ignore this giant issue felt a little, uh, didn't seem to have a lot of integrity. So we're going we're gonna to talk about it. And, you know, we really do firmly believe that God speaks into every area of our life, and that includes this particular issue as well. And let me just say on the front end, I think it is, it's nearly impossible to speak about this issue in a way that accurately represents the heart of Jesus. I mean, the Bible says that Jesus is full of grace and truth, grace and truth. And as a Christian, to speak about this topic, you know, you want to hit a note of grace, but if you only hit a note of grace, then there will be people that listen and think, well, you're soft, you're compromising the truth of the Bible. And if you only hit a note of truth as a Christian speaking about this topic, then you are seen as judgmental or hateful. You're kind of lumped into the same category of Westboro Baptist. And even if you try to hit both notes of grace and truth, there are people listening intently for only one trace of one note or the other. And so let me just say on the front end, I'm going to try to do both. And... Um, I know that not everybody in this room is going to agree with me, and uh, I'm probably going to say things uh, inaccurately or wrongly at times, and so let me just ask for your forgiveness and grace and patience on the front end as we sort of jump into these um, kind of uh, turbulent waters. And, and let me just say this also on the front end, that I'm not really interested in talking about the civic or the political implications of this issue. We're really only going to be talking about the biblical, theological <laughs> and personal dimensions here. As you can see on your handout, we're going to look at basically three things. The Bible and homosexuality, the church and homosexuality, and the gospel and homosexuality. So let me pray first, and then we'll jump in. Okay, let me pray. Father, as we um, um, begin to address uh, this issue that is so um, charged and so personal and so... Um, heavy for a lot of us. I pray that you'd give us grace. Give me grace. Um, I pray that uh, what I say 
and the words that come out of my mouth would accurately reflect your heart. Would you um, give us all grace to have our eyes and our ears opened, that we would be able to see and behold um, good things from your word tonight. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let's look, uh, let's just kind of go down the line here. Uh, Let's start with the first heading, the Bible and homosexuality. How does the Bible speak to this issue? And as you can see on your handout, I think the Bible says two things about this issue that, biblically speaking, are absolutes. These are biblical absolutes. I'm going to state them on the front end and then sort of give you the biblical rationale and elaborate some. First thing that the Bible says about homosexuality is basically in context what it says about sex in general. And this is what we really explored last week a lot, which is this, that the Bible's view of sex is that God designed sex to be enjoyed exclusively in the context of marriage between a man and a woman. That's the biblical position on sexuality. And so obviously a homosexual practice would fall outside of that. But that's not the only thing that the Bible says about this issue. The Bible says also, secondly, just as importantly, that Christians must love their neighbors. That Christians are devoted to the welfare of their neighbors. That we guard uh, their life, we look out for them, we guard their welfare, we serve them, we pray for them, we defend them. And your neighbor is someone that doesn't always believe like you do or act like you do. So Christians are deeply committed to the benefit and the welfare of our Muslim neighbors, of our Hindu neighbors, of our homosexual neighbors, of our atheist neighbors. Both of those things are in some ways biblical absolutes that Christians must love their neighbor on the one hand, and yet Christians can't adopt a different view of sexuality that's offered from the Bible. So... Let me take one of these, uh, take these each at a time and sort of give you the biblical basis of this. Uh, let's first look at the biblical rationale that sex must be reserved for heterosexual marriage. Where do we get that from, biblically speaking? If you look at um, Genesis 1 and 2, the foundation for it is there, and it's in your handout. Genesis 1:27. here we say that God made us male and female. He didn't just create generic, asexual human beings. He created gendered human beings. And the reason why this is important, if you look at Genesis 2.18, this is why when it says it's, it's not good for a man to be alone, the way that God solved Adam's loneliness was by creating a woman. He could have created a man. He could have created a community of people, but he didn't. He created a woman. And it's her otherness, sort of capital O, is what completes and complements him. She's just like him in the sense that she's human, but she's also radically different from him. And there are, man, there are really deep theological implications for all of this. That I'm just going to do a, a flyby in passing. I'm going to give you three theological sort of purposes behind why this is set up. The first setup is because, in this sense, God's design for marriage accurately reflects, in some way, God's very nature. The Bible says that God's a trinity, that he's three different persons, different persons that are all united as one God. There's a unity and diversity. And marriage in that unity and diversity reflects the very nature of God in that sense. Uh, The the second sort of deep theological, I guess this isn't that deep theological principle here, is that in the context of marriage, uh, people can actually live out Genesis 1.28, to be fruitful and to multiply, to have children, to actually participate in procreation. And then the third theological reasoning behind this is that marriage is in many ways the pattern of redemption. In, in Ephesians chapter 5, God says, or, sorry, Paul says that marriage 
is a representation of God's relationship with his church, that Jesus is the groom and his people, his church, is the bride. And so it's interesting, the Bible begins in Genesis 1 with marriage, and the Bible ends in Revelation with the marriage between Jesus the groom and the church, the bride. So really, this is all big background stuff. The big theological background, the entire narrative of the Bible is that, is that um, God has designed sex to be in the context of marriage between a husband and a, and a wife. And so that's also why um, the Bible then speaks negatively to any form of sexuality that, that falls outside of that original design. Any form of sexuality that falls outside of that. And so we're, gonna, we're, we're just going to breeze by a few of these passages where, where the Bible does explicitly mention homosexuality and uh, see what it says about it. I'm, I'm actually not going to read all of these just for the sake of time, but I put them in your handout so that you can read them on your own. But if you look at Genesis 19 and in those two passages from Leviticus, you're going to see very clearly that the Bible, when it speaks about homosexuality, it speaks about it in negative terms because it falls out of that original design for where sex is supposed to uh, take place. Now, let's, talk, let's take just a quick, um, light commercial break, and let's talk about Glee for a second. Um, Glee, um, there was an episode in 2012 from the Valentine's Day special, and or not the special, this is not a special, Valentine's Day show, and um, it's an interesting episode where... Um, Santana, who is uh, one of the lesbian students on the show Glee, asked um, this group of Christians at her school, which was called the God Squad, to sing sort of a Valentine's Day, um, it's not lullaby, Valentine's Day, like, in, like uh, telegram sort of thing, to sing a song to her um, lesbian girlfriend. As, you know, she's, she wants to do something nice for her girlfriend, so she's asked the God Squad to sing a Valentine's Day song for her girlfriend. And one of the people in the God Squad, uh, is this homeschool guy, gets really nervous about this and reluctant about this, and, he, and so this sparks this conversation amongst the God Squad, of which I want to read you a couple of the lines from their dialogue. Mercedes, who's the leader of the God Squad, she says this, They say one out of every ten people are gay, and if that's true, that means one of the twelve apostles might have been gay. My guess is Simon, because that that name's the gayest. (laughs) It's supposed to be funny. You can laugh. One of them, Sam, chimed in, and he says, "Um, The Bible says it's an abomination for a man to lay with another man, but we shared tents in Cub Scouts and slept next to each other all the time. So would that make Cub Scouts an abomination? So another character jumps in and they go, you know what else the Bible says is an abomination? Eating lobster, planting crops in the same field, giving someone a proud look. Not an abomination? Slavery. Jesus never said anything about gay people. That's a fact. And then Sam brings it home and says, well, maybe he wanted to, but he didn't want to hurt Simon's feelings. (laughs) And I think... um, even though that dialogue is, you know, silly and it's kind of tongue-in-cheek, they are sort of making two arguments that are very popular when, when Christians talk about what the Bible has to say about homosexuality. The first is, Jesus never said anything about this issue. And Jesus' words should count for something, if not matter more than the rest of the Bible. 
So the argument goes. And then the second argument is, the, is like the Leviticus argument. Because if you look in Leviticus, when, it's, when it condemns homosexual practice, it's right next to other places about like eating pork and wearing multi-fibered clothing. So the argument goes, Christians, if you're going to, quote, believe the Bible, it certainly seems like you're picking and choosing. If you're, if you're just as content eating barbecue and wearing your poly-cotton fiber-blended whatevers, so those are, those are um, two interesting arguments that I just want to interact with really quickly before we keep going. The first, let's look at the silence argument, that Jesus never said anything about it. Well, well, okay, just because Jesus didn't say something about it explicitly, I don't think means that he doesn't care about it. I mean, Jesus never said anything about rape, about caring for the environment, about sex trafficking, but he most certainly cares about those issues. In fact, Jesus, it's a wrong assumption to pit his words against the rest of the Bible when Jesus himself says, I agree and affirm with the rest of the Bible. I've not come to abolish any of it, he says. In fact, in Matthew 19, if you look at it, he affirms the traditional Genesis understanding of what marriage is supposed to be in the first place. So the silence argument is, is, I don't think it's a great argument. The Leviticus argument, I think, is a little bit more serious because it requires a little bit more of a sophisticated response. I originally wrote like a page and a half response to this, and I showed it to my wife, and she was like, way too long and boring. So I'm going to give you the nutshell response of this as best as I can quickly. Um, when, when, the, when the Bible thinks about itself in terms of the Old Testament laws, it has different categories for the types of laws that it has in the Old Testament. So, for example, you have ceremonial laws. There's going to be three of them because I only think in terms of three. Um, you have ceremonial laws, which are all the laws about food and about um, purity and about um, cleanliness. And this has to do with someone's purity as they go before a religious ceremony, like the temple, as it were. The second type of law in the Old Testament were civil laws. These were the laws that the theocratic nation state of Israel governed their citizens by. And then the third category of laws were just moral laws. These were basically social ethics. Now Jesus, as far as the ceremonial law goes, the first category, he fulfilled all of the ceremonial laws. He declared all foods clean. So this is why Christians do eat barbecue, very thankfully. Um, this is why he, uh, with his death and his resurrection, he, he fulfilled the whole point of the ceremonial cleanliness system. This is why Christians don't sacrifice animals at church anymore, because it would be to say that Jesus' work is insufficient. He fulfilled all of that. So those laws in many ways don't apply anymore. The second set of laws, the civil laws, do just, you know, relegated just to the theocratic nation state of Israel, that is no longer an entity. There are no longer citizens of the theocracy of Israel, so those laws are abrogated. So what about the moral laws? The laws about caring for the poor and loving your neighbor and how you steward your sexuality. Those laws continue. Those laws still matter. In fact, I've included, um, just to kind of connect the dots here, that's why when you look at the New Testament's position on homosexuality, it affirms and echoes the Old Testament's position on homosexuality. Again, I'm not going to read all these passages, but if you look at uh, Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, uh, 1 Timothy 1, you can look these up later. Uh, it, it is the same point. My point is, is that any time the Bible speaks about homosexuality, it speaks about it in negative terms. Now, is that because God hates gay people? No. It's because any form of sexual practice outside of his original design, God would say, is a misuse of sex. 
And so I want you to see that the Bible's position on sex never singles out homosexuality as a category in and of itself that's, that's worse than all the others. It's an equal opportunity offender. The Bible's, the Bible's sexual ethic is just as much opposed to adultery and hooking up and porn and guys and girls living with each other. Those may be fun for, and enjoyable for the people that do them, but the Bible would say that's a misuse of God's original design for sexuality. So that's, in, in many ways, a very broad, fast um, uh, look at what the Bible has to say about sexuality in, in particular. But that's not the only thing the Bible says about this particular issue. Because the second thing I want to look at is what the Bible says about how Christians relate to other people. The Bible says that Christians must love their neighbors. If, if you look at um, that first John passage, let me read it real quick. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Think about it. What is the core central message of Christianity? If you kind of boil it all down to a core nugget nutshell, what is it? It's this. You have God out of love for people laying down his life for them. For the very people that disagree with them. For the very people that reject his message. That's what Christianity is in a nutshell. And so if you've been the recipient of that type of love, that love has to imitate and echo and flow out into your life as well. That you love other people in the same way that you've been loved. This is the whole point of the parable of the Good Samaritan, by the way. That Christians ought to sacrificially, out of mercy and love and compassion, lay down their life for people that look different from them, believe differently from them, act differently from them. So let me give you, if this is true, let me give just kind of three quick applications before we move to the second big heading here. Here's the first application of of what this would look like practically, is that Christians must offer our gay friends affection and community and friendship. I think there are many churches and Christian communities that just get this wrong and make a big mistake in thinking that if you're gay, if you're a homosexual, then we're going to reject you or shun you or at least treat you as lesser. And, and I'm, I'm uh, ashamed of the ways that I've been in churches and seen churches from up front be hateful towards um, gay people. I'm ashamed of my own past in many ways, the ways that I've been unkind towards gay people. So Christians must love and offer real friendship and affection towards our gay friends. Uh, and, and that really means... Um, that means that we don't do this well and we need to do it better. And we need our gay friends help to help us see our blind spots in ways that we can do this better. So the first application is that we, we, we offer our gay friends friendship and community and affection. It doesn't make any sense if you think about it for Christians to reject anyone because Christians by definition, spiritually speaking, are those that are loved by God, not rejected. So it makes no sense to then turn around and reject someone else. Second application of this is that I think Christians, we need to confess our sins of the past and maybe our sins of the present. And so let me just do that now, even on on the front end. On behalf of the Christian community, if you're someone that 
does experience same-sex attraction or would identify yourself as gay, let me just say on behalf of the Christian community that we're really sorry for a long history of discrimination and judgmentalism and hatred. We don't do that, we have not done this well and we need to do it better. So please, in, in many ways, I mean as humbly as I can from up front, to offer you a very sincere apology for the ways that the Christian community has treated you and have treated friends that, your, your friends. Um, application number three. As far as RUF goes, I just want to be very explicit um, that we want this to be a safe and a warm and welcoming place for anybody to come. And we say this all the time, and we really do mean it, that we want this to be a place for, regardless of where you find yourself, politically, um, sexually, spiritually, if you're willing to kind of hang out with us and wrestle with what the Bible says with us, we, we want to be a warm and welcoming and loving place for you, a place where you can find community, a place where you can invest, a place where you can explore Christianity with us. And so help us, if you fall into that category, help us think through ways that we don't do this well or are unintentionally excluding or rejecting people. So that's um, point number one, the longest of all the points, the Bible and homosexuality. We'll go faster now. Point two, the church and homosexuality. And you can see on your handout, um, I want to try to answer two questions here. How does the church relate to Christians that are gay? And how does the church relate to people that aren't Christians that are gay? First one, how does the church relate to Christians that are gay? And by the way, let me just say this on the front end, <laughs> although we're not really on the front end anymore. Let me say this in the middle. Um, there's a whole, obviously, there's a whole debate going on right now about um, nature and nurture. Are you born with a homosexual orientation or is it part of your context and the way that you were sort of um, raised? Uh, th by the way, the scholarship I've looked at it, over the past 10, 15 years, it, it is going back and forth on this. I personally don't think anybody with same-sex attraction chose that. Uh, I think there's lots of different factors involved, but at the end of the day, I don't think the reason ultimately matters. How someone got there, you're the way that you are, you have the passions that you have, you have the desires that you have, but that doesn't exclude you or anyone from moral responsibility. I mean, if you can just use me as a very bad example, um, the, Howell, the, the Howell family line, the men in my family, are very easily agitated and angered. We just get angry easily. And so you could say that's just sort of in my genetics, that I get easily angry. And so if my Christian friends were to look at me and say, I mean, you're angry a lot, and I were just to say, hey, that's just that's the way I am. I, I, that's, I, can't, I can't help it. They'd look at me and say, well, I know that's the way that you are, and that's helpful to know so I can know how to pray for you and care for you. But the Bible does still call you to, a, you still have responsibility. The Bible still speaks to you to deal with this. And so how can we help um, our gay friends uh, that happen to want to follow Christ and live a godly life, how can we come alongside of them and, and help them, help them in their particular struggle? Well, um, I think there's lots of different ways that we can do it. I'm not going to spell out everything, but... Um, uh, I think that means uh, that you come alongside of your friends that experience same-sex attraction or identify themselves as gay, that you pray for them, you, you hold them accountable to serve Jesus with their sexuality. And if you think, okay, well, how can someone who's gay and wants to follow Jesus live out their sexuality? How, does that mean that they can't act on their desires if they want to follow Christ? Can they, can they not have sex, as it were? And, and I would say, yeah, I think that's what that means for them. And you think, wow, that's crazy. 
I, I would say, look, I, the Bible says the same thing to any single person, heterosexual, homosexual, or otherwise, to someone that's not married. I mean, my wife and I have lots of friends, uh, um, single women in their 30s that desperately want to get married, but no men are calling. And so they're sort of in this position of, I want to be faithful to Jesus. What do I do when I have these desires? And, and there's, no, there's no outlet for it. Well, um, it, it, it's really hard. They could just go out and hook up with someone to um, fulfill that desire of theirs. But they've chosen to say no to that desire to follow Jesus. And, it, and it's really hard. But it's, it, the point is, is that their call to obedience is no different from what, what the Bible would say to our homosexual friends that necessarily don't have that outlet at this particular time in their life. So, um, uh, if, if you keep thinking about this, what's fascinating to me is that it's, it's, not my, it's not the Christians that I know that are same-sex attracted that really screw up in this area. It's, it's actually the heterosexual um, friends that I know that screw up a lot more in this area. It's actually my, my, my gay Christian friends that are way more godly with their sexuality than my straight Christian friends. Uh, let me give you an example. I recently sat down and had a coffee with a friend of mine um, who is a Christian who wants to follow Christ and he would consider himself he's same-sex attracted. And he went through this, this past year this arduous, painful journey of really figuring out what the Bible has to say about this particular topic. So he's reading these thick books and studying and he's meeting with pastors and he's talking to people because he really wants to know what does Jesus say about my sexuality? And he was so careful, so intentional, so methodical. And after this long journey, at the very end of it, he concluded at the end of the day, I think the Bible forbids this, and I can't act out on these desires. It's hard. It's really hard. But for me to say no to this means that I'm saying yes to Jesus, which means he's, he's worth it. He's worth it to me. Now, I'm sitting across the table from him and thinking, good grief, that is unbelievable. I mean, you may disagree with him and think that's, he's repressing something that he should actually live out in his life. But regardless of what you think about his position, you have to at least admire his courage and his devotion. To say, Jesus matters to me more than my desires, more than my sexual desires. I find him more beautiful than whatever I would kind of live out on my own. And, and actually, I so wish my heterosexual friends would do that. I wish my heterosexual students would do that. Because so often, it's the heterosexual students on UT's campus that say, I know what Jesus says about my sexuality. I just don't care. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And maybe I'll ask for forgiveness or feel guilty about it. But that sort of perspective just brings so much chaos, so much damage into your lives. And I think this is an area where we really can learn from our gay friends that are trying to follow Jesus. I think they just do it better. Um, so uh, that may mean you may think, um, well, that's, that just means that life is a lot harder for them if they're a Christian and they're gay. That following Jesus for someone who has same-sex attraction is harder. Now, I want to read you on that particular thought a quote from a pastor named Sam Alberry. He's a pastor. He's um, openly um, same-sex attracted. And he wrote a great little book, which I would recommend to you, called Is God Anti-Gay? Sam Alberry, A-L-L-B-E-R-R-Y. And here's what he writes. 
He says, ever since I have been open about my own experiences of homosexuality, a number of Christians have said something like this. The gospel must be harder for you than for me, as though I have more to give up than they do. But the fact is that the gospel demands everything of all of us. If someone thinks the gospel has somehow slotted into their life quite easily without causing any major adjustments to their lifestyle or aspirations, it is likely that they have not really started following Jesus at all. That's a great line because he basically is saying, if following Jesus is easy for you, then you don't understand what it means to follow Jesus. He asks everything from all of us. So that's how um, the church can come alongside other believers that are gay. We encourage them. We hold them accountable. We pray for them. We serve them. So how can the church relate to our friends that are gay but aren't Christians? Well, this is just to reiterate what I said before, is that you love them. You befriend them. You act normal around them. You hang out with them and like enjoy their company and enjoy getting to know them. You pray for them. You engage them with the gospel in your own personal way whenever you feel like it's, it's wise to do that. But it's not like they're in a completely other category than anyone else. You, you love them the same way that you love um, your neighbor in, in, in any way. And the hope, by the way, the hope of loving someone who's not a Christian, who's a homosexual, the hope is not to get them to become a heterosexual. If there's any goal, if there's any hope or aspiration, is that they would come to know Jesus. Look, a, a couple of years ago, um, I got to know this girl that was involved in RUF, and um, we grabbed coffee a number of times, and she was very courageous to let me into some of the deeper places of her life, and so she admitted to me that she was gay, and that she even told me about her relationship with her girlfriend, and I tried to do that. I tried to love her and serve her, and I even was counseling her with her relationship with her, with her girlfriend, which was kind of new territory for me at the time, and um, at some point, after getting to know her for you know months and months, she found out my opinion about um, the biblical, you know, the biblical position on homosexual practice. And so she, she didn't want to meet with me anymore and left RUF. And I guess it's been a few years now since I've even talked to her. It's actually, it was really sad to me that that's what happened. And my guess is some of you are thinking, well, yeah, I don't blame her. She didn't want to hang out with you because you didn't accept her for who she was. And uh, my guess is that's probably what um, she thought as well, that I don't want to be around you if you're not going to accept who I am. And, and I get that. I, that, I, that makes sense to me. Instinctively, I get that. But I also want to gently nudge on that instinct and press just a little bit. Because if the instinct is, if, if a gay person looks at me and says, hey, uh, you don't accept me for me. I, I, my identity is, my deepest identity is that I'm gay. Why can't you accept me for who I am? And I would say, look, I, I'm a Christian. The deepest part of my identity is that I follow Jesus, that Jesus is the way and the truth of the life. That's the deepest part of who I am. You, you don't accept that. You don't accept my identity. You, you're not a Christian. You don't think Christianity is true. But I still want to be friends with you. Just because we don't agree with each other on these deep identity issues, that doesn't mean that we can't be friends. If you're only friends with the people that agree with you, then all of your friends are just going to look like you. We live in a pluralistic society, and so we have to engage with each other respectfully and civilly because we're all going to disagree about something. Just because I think homosexuality is wrong and you think Christianity is wrong doesn't mean we can't be friends. I still want to be friends with you. I still want to love you. 
And, and also, here's where I want to kind of press and challenge very gently our cultural assumptions that to say that somebody else is wrong is to automatically be interpreted as that that's a hateful thing. If you, if you just disagree with someone or say, I think what you're doing is wrong, that that's automatically interpreted as being hateful. And I, and I want to challenge that. Last week, my daughter, who's four years old, punched my son, who's two years old, in the face. And then she lied about it. And I, in my own way, told her, I think that's wrong. I think what, you're, I think what you did is, is wrong. Now, for me to tell her, I think what you're doing is wrong, it was not, a, it was not, me, it was not a hateful thing. I was not hating her in that moment. To tell someone that I think what you're doing is wrong or to disagree with you is not hateful. But if, you, if, you, if, if, you're, if you're not buying it, if you really think there's you know, hate laced in there to disagree with someone, then you have to admit that cuts both ways. Because you're looking at me right now saying, I disagree with you. You're disagreeing with me. You're disagreeing with what this Christian is saying and thinking and believing. Does that mean you hate me right now? Well, I hope not. I hope that just disagreeing doesn't mean that your interpreter is automatically hating someone. Because as a Christian, we would say, someone laid down their life for me when I disagreed with them. So how can I not want to lay down my life for you when you disagree with me? But still, I know some of you are thinking, oh, but, being, but, that, but being gay is their identity. They can't choose who they are. Christianity and you and RUF and all you conservative bigots are not allowing them to be who they are. And I think that's a nice... That's a great segue into this last point, the gospel and homosexuality. Because you may not be able to decide what your sexual desires are, but you can decide whether or not you want to make that your identity. You didn't have to do that. You didn't have to choose to make that the primary core of who you are as a person. Just because that's what you feel does not mean that that is what you are. Take me for example. Uh, I'm attracted to women, I'm a heterosexual man, that is one of my desires. But I think it would be dehumanizing to reduce the entirety of who I am to that one instinct of mine, that one desire of mine. T take another appetite, another desire of mine. An appetite of mine is that I really love a good hamburger. And I'm thankful to live in Knoxville because there's like 800 <laughs> hamburger places here. But I really enjoy, you know, a good burger. You could say I'm a carnivore in that sense. But to reduce the identity of who I am by one appetite, one desire that I have, would in some sense be dehumanizing. And what I think the gospel offers you and what it offers me and what it offers anyone is it offers you an identity that's more humanizing, more dignifying, and more liberating. Because it looks at you and says you're not just reduced to, to one impulse. There's more to you than, than that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul reminds us of the grace that is offered to every one of us. In verse 11, if you look at it, he gives this sort of long list of people that he says won't inherit the kingdom of God. He says, uh, the sexually immoral, drunkards, adulterers, thieves, the greedy, slanderers, homosexual offenders. I know we only kind of hear that last one, and it's kind of like red alert, but don't you see how universalizing he was with that whole list? I mean, he puts greed right next to homosexual practice. And what he's saying is that we are all in a condition where we find ourselves that we're hopeless and that we're helpless and that we all desperately need the grace of God. But there's not anyone in this room, myself included, whose sexuality is not broken. 
that every single one of us is in desperate need of the grace of God. This is something that we firmly believe in RUF. We deeply believe that you are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. But no one is so good that they're beyond the need of God's grace. But he doesn't just end there and sort of list this long list of all these people that aren't going to inherit the kingdom of God. What he says right after that is this. But that is what some of you were. He says, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, look, we all have our own unique struggles and our own wrestling matches with our sin. But the reality is, is that's not your identity any longer. Your identity is in Christ. That in him you are washed, you are sanctified, you are cleansed. He deals with your guilt. He deals with your shame. He's the one that frees you. He's the one that adopts you. Your identity in Christ is that you are beloved. Child of the king. And that's a better identity than anything you can come up with. So let me end here. This is one of my favorite stories that Jesus tells. I'll end with this. Jesus tells a story about a man that goes out shopping for pearls. And he comes across this pearl that is so priceless, so beautiful, so valuable to him that he leaves the shop and goes out and sells everything that he owns so that he can go back and buy the pearl. You think that's a stupid financial move for that person. But for him, to lose everything was worth it because the pearl was so much more valuable than anything that he had. So he willingly gives it all up the pearl. And Jesus is saying this, look, I'm the pearl. I'm the pearl that it's worth giving up everything for in order to get me. That to even say no to some of your most deepest, strongest sexual desires, the only way that you would ever say no to that is that you've discovered that saying yes to Jesus is worth it. That he's more valuable. He's more priceless. He's more beautiful. He's more fulfilling than anything I had before. So Jesus says on the one hand that he's the pearl, but on the other hand, Jesus is also saying, I'm the man in the story. I'm the one that gave up everything to get you. I'm the one that gave up the glory of heaven, the security of heaven. I came down, I became homeless, and then I gave up my life to get you. And if that's what he gave up to get you, what does that mean by implication how he thinks of you? He thinks of you as priceless as beautiful, as worth it. That even you with all of your flaws, all of your struggles, me with all of my flaws and all of my struggles, he looked at me and he looked at you and he says, you're worth it. You are worth giving everything up in order to get. You are my treasure. And once you realize that you are his treasure, only then will he start to become your treasure. Once you see that he gave up everything in order to get you, that's the only thing that will ever compel you to give up everything in order to get him. So consider that an invitation for you tonight. Let me pray. Father, these are um, hard issues indeed. And I know that I have, in fact, probably raised more questions than answered them. And um, many of the folks here tonight um, may even be wounded and hurt or offended by Uh, what was shared tonight. So I pray that you would give um, us all grace as we wrestle with and process what it means to follow you, what it means to be truthful, what it means to be gracious and loving, 
Help us to be sensitive and yet um, to hold to our convictions. Help us to be winsome and gracious as we engage these topics that are so, um, that just require so much care and sensitivity. Um, Thank you for tonight. Thank you that your word does speak truth and it does offer us something more beautiful than we could ever concoct in our own imaginations. Thank you for Jesus and for the way that he gave up everything in order to get us. And will we do the same in, in turn? And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.